Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Out of all the passages I've studied or prepared a lesson for, this first section of Titus 2 was the most convicting. Yes, chapter 1 was convicting in its own right. It began with a long introduction, ended with the sad state of affairs on the island of Crete, and listed the qualifications for pastors and elders in between. That chapter was convicting in many ways as it revealed many of the toxic behaviors which can plague a church or a person's life. Sins such as having an authority complex, running your mouth, uh, being a pathological liar, struggling with greed, being violent, uh, being uh, lazy, impure, and disobedient. And if any of these things can be found in my or your life, we need to be rebuked just like the Cretans. Chapter 2 sees Paul shift away from the bad behavior in Crete, and he now focuses on the standards of good behavior in the life of the Christian church. To me, it is even more convicting to see how we fall short of that standard than it is to see how we sometimes uh, behave like the world does. So Paul's going to give us um, what this standard is, and he starts off saying to Titus, actually, uh, and probably his elders and fellow pastors that might be with him, saying, but as for you, teach what accords with sound, doc sound doctrine. And this phrase, sound doctrine, is repeated multiple times in the letter. And Paul here is explaining that uh, Christian living corresponds with correct Christian teaching. There's a connection between righteous living and healthy doctrine. And Titus was to explain it and exemplify it. However, this command of Paul extends far beyond Titus. Pastors even now must still teach what and live in a way that accords with the Bible. 
If a church begins to affirm certain sins from the pulpit, it will only result in more and more destructive behavior in the public. So our gatherings and services should be places where disciples are made by teaching a Jesus-approved curriculum. Remember in the Great Commission, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in Jesus' church, the curriculum is set. We stick to his words and the words of those whom he sent. This way, our churches become regional outposts, if you will, for God's truth. Paul said to Timothy, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Godliness goes along with sound doctrine. And in verse 2 and following, Paul will define what it means to be godly. The Bible and this little letter is very practical in this way. This letter to Titus supplies action steps and application to the lives of those in the Cretan congregations. And so he starts with the older men in verse 2. This phrase is used three times in the New Testament. First, Zacharias calls himself an older man when the angel Gabriel informed him that his wife Elizabeth would give birth to his son John the Baptist. That's in Luke 1. Paul uses it here in Titus to address certain men in the Cretan church. And later, Paul would use it to describe himself in the letter called Philemon. Uh, but before we look at what God requires of older men in the church, we should probably ask, when is a man considered old? Everything in Jewish culture points to the age uh, 40. But I think Paul abstains from giving an exact number in, in this letter to Titus when he says older men for a reason. The makeup of each church is different. In a group of mostly 20-somethings, men in their 30s and 40s are the older crowd. In a church of mostly 50-somethings, the 60- and 70-year-olds fit the elderly category. So no matter what, if you're a man, you're older than someone else in your congregation. And being mindful of this, you need to set an example for those who may be looking up to you. Nowadays, we live in a culture where no one wants to admit that they're old. People go to great lengths to pretend that they're young. But according to the Bible, it's good to be old. Job 12.12 12 says, Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in the length of days. Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. In America, we have this sometimes unfortunate obsession with being young. Youth culture sets the trends while the old people are almost totally forgotten. You'll even hear Christians say, I want to go to a younger church. 
But before we make such ignorant statements, let us remember that someday, if not already, we will be the old people in the church. Getting old is not a bad thing. In the church, it's supposed to be a good thing. God has given older people a huge role in society, especially within the Christian community. And Paul continues unpacking the roles of older men and women. First, the older men are instructed to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Old Christian men should have dignity. They should be respected. Sure, they can laugh and have fun, but they should live and walk in such remarkable wisdom that when they speak up, the church listens. Rather than trying to seem young and hip, older men should set an example for younger men. Hopefully you know at least one older man who, for the most part, fits this description. Sadly, many of us know an older man who's cynical, sour, negative, bitter, or unhappy. Others of us know a man who has a habit of making rash decisions in his older years. But neither of these are the design for how a man should finish out his life. And next, Paul moves on to the older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. A similar standard of behavior is required of older women. Apparently, heavy drinking was a big issue on the island of Crete. That shouldn't surprise you. We live in the most alcoholic age in history. Research shows that more women are drinking more alcohol than ever before in human society, with one in eight women admitting to binge drinking which is defined as six or more drinks in one setting. There's a Facebook group called, uh, uh, well, it's got 170,000 plus members in it, and it's called, OMG, I so need a glass of wine or I'm going to sell my kids. A brand of wine used to have this tagline, put your kids to bed and have a glass of mommy juice. But rather than Netflixing themselves to death, drinking glass after glass after glass of wine, older Christian women are supposed to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Older women are to train younger women to do several things, but they can be boiled down to two things. Number one, love their husbands and children, and I would add, in that order. In a family, the spouses, the adults, must come first. God established this as the order. The parents are in charge of the household. If the kids run the show, rest assured that it's a dysfunctional home with children who are impossible to corral. Moreover, if children are the sole focus of a marriage, and the spouses fail to dedicate time and energy to each other, when the kids grow up and move out, making the parents empty nesters, the marriage is likely to fall apart. The second thing that uh, older women are to train the younger women to do is to work at home. 
Now, this doesn't mean that a wife can't or shouldn't have a job. Instead, it means that the duties at home cannot be ignored. According to Proverbs 31, a great godly woman does the following things. Works with her hands, finds ingredients and prepares meals, invests in and maintains real estate, raises a garden, makes merchandise, sews and knits clothing and linens, gives to charity, and volunteers in the community, and makes deliveries. But even in the midst of all these tasks, it is paramount for the children to be raised right. It's a team effort, and the father has just as much responsibility to be present in the household uh, as the mother does. However, there are some differences between the roles of men and women. For one, the man is responsible to provide for the household, to earn a living. He is uh, also supposed to love his wife in a way that mimics Jesus' love for the church. See uh, Ephesians 5 for that. In response, the woman is supposed to love her husband and set the tone of the home. Now, I bet when you read verses 4 and 5 of Titus 2, one word stuck out to you. I'm speaking of the word submissive. A lot of people don't like it, but in its truest sense, it's not a bad word at all. Here's what being submissive doesn't mean. The man comes home and says, honey, I don't care that we're financially strapped. I'm buying a brand new boat. And the woman says, okay, honey, whatever makes you happy. This is not proper submission or love. In fact, that sounds like a man who doesn't have a sober mind. True Christian submission in marriage is when the wife says, here is a man who loves me, who provides for me, who holds me in a place of honor, and who has my best interest in mind. Here is a guy who's godly and I can trust. I'm going to be loyal, I'm going to be his teammate, I'm going to do my part, and I'm going to trust his leadership. The world would have you believe that submission is always a bad thing, and that anyone who submits to someone else must have low self-esteem. But that is totally off base. Jesus, God the Son, submitted to God the Father. Listen to John 6, 38. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Listen to how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. The Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. So Jesus, again, being subjected to God the Father. He is totally equal to God the Father, yet Jesus submitted to his will. So when the Bible calls women to submit to their husbands, or children to submit to parents, or citizens to submit to the government, it's asking us to act like Jesus, to accept the Jesus role. Each member of the Trinity has a different role, but they are all equal to each other in authority and value. Ephesians 1 teaches us that the Father planned salvation, Jesus paid for it, accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. These are different roles, but all the same God. So please don't think that a difference in duty 
means a difference in value. Each member in a household is equally valuable, though they have different roles. If our marriages lack submission, dedication, and loyalty, they will be out of control and the Word of God will be reviled, Paul says. If Christian spouses can't get along and listen to God's instructions for marriage, outsiders will judge our whole belief system based on that alone. Just to paint a picture of the Christian household, I'm going to read Psalm 127 and 128, which are two short psalms back to back, but they are profound. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Likewise, moving on in the family, Paul says, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, I found this short statement to be so convicting because there are many areas in my life where I don't seem to have much self-control at all. And yet, this is the main thing that Paul tells Titus to require of young Christian men. Today, there is an epidemic of immaturity, lust, and lack of time management among young men. But thankfully, this passage points us to the solution. The younger men have someone to look up to, the older men. So perhaps us younger men who need a little bit of help and guidance and encouragement can find a mentor. We need to stop treating the older Christians in our lives like they're out of touch and realize that they've got a whole lot more experience than we do. Instead of looking for marriage advice on Google, we could offer to take an older Christian out to lunch and pick their brain about married life. So I would ask you right now, listening, Who's an older Christian in your life that could give you advice? And when is the last time that you went to an older believer who's wiser than you are and asked them for guidance? Next, Paul gives Titus some instructions for himself, his own behavior. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. This verse is very similar to a popular verse written to Paul's other student, his other mentee, his other protege named Timothy. Maybe you'll recognize it. It's 1 Timothy 4.12. 
Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now he's going to move on to the instructions for slaves. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Believe it or not, a lot of first century Christians were slaves or servants. Today, the closest thing to Roman slavery is your job, whether you do manual labor, work a nine-to-five, or are a student. A master was essentially an employer. So as Christians, when we go to work, we should strive to be our boss's best employee. They should rarely have a problem with us and our work ethic. And this is especially the case if you have been blessed with a Christian boss. We are to adorn the doctrine of God, Paul says, at our places of work. Now that word adorn is a fancy word for wear. And the Greek word behind it actually gives us our English word cosmetics. So just like a woman might put makeup on in the morning. We need to put on the truth and the godly living which goes along with it each day. Our Christianity is not a lucky tie or a fancy dress that only gets worn on the most special of occasions. Instead, our faith and our conduct should be worn like the coat we put on each day before venturing outside to go to work, school, or wherever God may take us. I hope that's been an encouragement to you, but also a convicting experience to see this high standard of Christian living that Paul gives the church. Next time we will pick up again in Titus 2 and finish out the chapter.